So before we begin our conversation with Brandon Bain on his book, um, Missions Begin with Blood, it's a very interesting book on martyrdom complex, basically, in colonialism, which not only has something to do with centuries ago, but with our present moment, I want to real quick uh, mention that I just launched a new organization called the Working People's Association of Charlotte, WPACLT. Did it with uh, about 10 others. It's a really exciting organization. What we're doing is we are focusing on the problems and issues of working people here in Charlotte, right? Pretty basic, but um, unfortunately, the U.S. activism uh, has a hard time focusing on the actual issues and problems and interests of the people that we're organizing. So that's what we're going to do. We're really excited uh, about it. I'd love for you to check it out. You can follow us on Instagram. Um, follow our work at Working People CLT. Working People CLT. Um, that's the, our Instagram username. Uh, follow us and check us out uh, as we learn through our practice. Uh, <clears throat> the second thing is um, I'm a I'm a full time worker, but I'm a part time activist, and so every single dollar that has been contributed at Patreon for the last couple years over um, with the Faith in Capital support and now Mass Struggle goes to not just to like producing this uh, these podcasts and this content for podcast listeners but to my activist work so i super super appreciate um, everyone who supports um, me over on the patreon because again it's not just for the content that's produced through the podcasts which to be honest i mean podcasts really aren't that important what's way more important is organizing work, mobilizing work, and on the ground educating, which I'm doing literally throughout the week. Um, I can't talk about, you know, I, I don't talk about everything on this podcast. I can't. I, I really shouldn't. No, you know, we, we really shouldn't talk about everything we do. But um, uh, yeah, I did help just co-found this new organization. We're organizing people around their real living interests and problems. So if you want to support the show, but also if you want to support me personally as someone who's committed uh, and participating in organizational work and um, education through an organization in a real city and, you know, with real people on the ground, then please um, support me at uh, Faith and Capital Faith Patreon or the Mass Struggle Patreon. Um, with that, oh, you know what? Last thing, actually. I'm doing a organizing workshop, an organizing 101 workshop. So if you yourself are interested in developing your skills and your knowledge and on how to organize or even like how to start a new organization that does something like RWPA is going to do, organize and mobilize people around their real uh, concerns and problems that they're having. Well, I'm doing an organizing 101 workshop. I'm doing it through Mass Struggle, actually. So you can uh, connect with me over at Mass Struggle Pod. I think it's in the Faith and Capital show notes. But Mass Struggle Pod, P-O-D. That's our Instagram username. Or you can just message me here. But um, I've got a long list. Literally over 100 people have signed up already for the organizing 101 workshop. Uh, because we need to develop new activists. We need to turn mass activists into really, really strong, militantly committed, um, well-trained activists. And so um, I'd love to learn with you all as I do these workshops with people. So reach out to me through Faith and Capital. Reach out to me through my Mass Struggle podcast or links, uh, my Instagram. And yeah, I'd love to sign you up for the workshops. I'm going to do the first round. I'm actually, unfortunately... 
100 plus it's going to be too big for the first november so i'm going to split it into a couple um and then i'll probably end up start doing them once a month so if you can't make the november one just let me know and we can get you signed up for a future one as well all right that's plenty here here's my conversation with brandon bain on modernism complex and colonialism Missions begin with blood, suffering, and salvation in the borderlands of New Spain. Brandon Bain, it's awesome to speak with you today. I genuinely, I, I, I deeply enjoyed reading your book. Uh, it helped me get into the head of not only 16th century Spanish Jesuit religious colonizers, but it also developed my understanding of 21st century U.S. American Christian colonizers. So I think this book is a very fascinating uh, book. Uh, obviously, I'm interested in the the whole theological and religious aspect. You know, we talked about the agricultural metaphors, um, but I'm also uh, here. This is a communist project uh, podcast, a Christian podcast, and so we're trying to we want to transform the world. I think that's what both our faith and our politics should be about. Um, so again, I I really found this text interesting, and I appreciate your work. So why don't you go ahead? introduce yourself, and then let's go ahead and dive in as well. What were your political intentions behind this project? And what's the main idea of your book that you hope the reader to walk away with? Okay, great. Yeah, thanks, Chase, for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I'm excited about this conversation. So uh, I am an associate professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I've been here for about a decade. And this book came out, wasn't inspired really by my dissertation, but represents a, a lot of revision that I did uh, over the first five, six years I was here at Chapel Hill. And um, I teach in, I mostly teach religion in the Americas, uh, religion in Latin America, religion in the US. And um, so a lot of what we're talking about today, I think connects to that sort of broader purview, even though we're focused on colonial Mexico, uh, that I've always been interested in the payoff, both in terms of Mexican national history and U.S. national history, as well as my own background as a Christian who made his way from conservative circles to progressive circles uh, over the last decade. So in terms of the political intentions behind the project, it's really verboten amongst historians to admit to political intentions, uh, I, and I am a historian, but one of the things I like about uh, being in religious studies is it's not as bad within religious studies because there's a understanding um, within religious studies that we are pursuing theoretical interests that move beyond just the narrow confines of the time and place that we might study. So I'm a historian who's studying the early modern period and studying colonial New Spain, uh, but I am interested in thematic and theoretical questions that move beyond that in the history of Christianity, in the history of the U.S. and Mexico. And it's part of the reason um, that I'm happy to admit uh, that the kernel for this project really began in the mid-2000s as I was uh, in seminary, uh, in an evangelical seminary at Gordon-Conwell and watching fellow Christians rationalize the invasion of Iraq which um, even though I was, I would put myself in that world of conservative evangelicalism in the early 2000s, I was shocked seeing uh, the way that that community mobilized behind the project of first invading Afghanistan and Iraq on on such little 
evidence, right? And such seemingly clear evidence that it was really an imperial project. Yeah, so, you know, just witnessing in the run-up and the justification of the invasion of Iraq that the most powerful empire in the world was positioning itself as a, a victim, and a victim in particular of global terrorism, and justifying that violence, the intended violence in Iraq, and what we know was devastating loss of life, uh, vis-a-vis the loss of life from 9-11. And I don't want to diminish the tragedy of those deaths. In fact, I had a college friend who was in the second tower and died that day. Uh, but I but I sort of actually, as someone who is a friend of someone who died, was offended by that repurposing of loss of life uh, in order to justify more violence and more suffering for other families. And so I became interested in a genealogy of how how powerful people, powerful communities, the case of the U.S. and imperial power, positioned itself as persecuted, and how that language of sacrifice or innocent blood crying out for vengeance served to fuel that impulse. And I would say, you know, to the second part of your question, what's the main idea of missions begin with blood? It's focused on how discourses of persecution particularly Christian discourses of persecution served as a powerful rationalization for violence. And more specifically, how Christian theologies of salvation or soteriology, especially those that are predicated on suffering or the sacrifice of an innocent life, uh, have operated to explain away aggression and suffering. Excellent, yeah. And per the part on Iraq, I had mentioned this earlier, actually, in just, I think, uh, a few episodes ago with my conversation with the Magnificast, but the 9-11, I think, brought about three to 4,000 deaths here in the U.S., and in the first Iraq war, we killed 2 million Iraqis, and in the second, another 650,000 Iraqis. And so, it's as you were correctly naming, the war on terror uh, was a war to justify, first of all, the imperialism, U.S. imperialism, and second of all, the genuine terror, the U.S. terror. Um, and, and so, I mean, I could dive into that particular situation in particular, but you're absolutely right that it, it is so egregious to take the suffering of people. For example, you know, we, we just recently had 18 little children slaughtered in a school. And um, what, what's this being used for? Well, we got to ramp up policing, right? It, it's just so egregious to see that both the Democratic and the Republican parties are weaponized these tragic situations where working people and colonized, nationally colonized people, black, indigenous, Latin, or um, violence against trans and, and women, just any targeted group in general, when uh, people, when, when there are acts of true violence, that these situations are weaponized into, we need to further ramp up say, capitalist exploitation uh, against workers or uh, or white groups are being targeted now by, you know, black people or Latino or whatever the, the myth is, right? Um, be afraid of trans persons, you know, because they're, they're, they're hurting us or something rather than they're literally uh, gangs of men who, who daily kidnap and murder trans people. So I, I think this is a really interesting thing, especially, you know, I grew up evangelical as well. And I remember... Uh, the the day of 9/11 where we were just all afraid we were all terrified and um, and there was an incident 
not long after where I remember talking with my parents and I was deathly afraid because I genuinely, I was, I was just a child, but I genuinely was afraid that my parents were being targeted because they were Christian. In my head at the time, the language in my head um, as, a, as a child in rural Pennsylvania was that Muslim terrorists were going to target my parents because they were believers in Jesus. So that's the kind of ideology that children are raised with. Um, and it's not new, as your book <laughs> is a great example of. So I really appreciate the connection between what we're talking about with 16th century Spanish Jesuits is there are some serious and important parallels to what is happening today. Uh, yeah, can I quickly connect to that? Um, if I were to give a separate origin story to my dissertation uh, on its way to this book, it would go back to a colloquium where a professor of mine, Bob Orsi, the well-known uh, scholar of religious studies and historian of Catholicism in the U.S., you know, made a comment to me about me growing up as a conservative evangelical. And he asked me to explain the popularity of the book um, Jesus Freaks, which was published by the band DC Talk, right? And it was their repurposing of the 16th century uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which oh, which itself was a repurposing of early Christian, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs takes early Christian tales of persecution, pulls into of Protestantism in England, and argues, you know, that Protestants under uh, Mary Tudor in England were being persecuted just like Christians of the early church. DC Talk in the 1990s takes that book, republishes it, with wow. tales of evangelical martyrdom uh, all across the U.S. and um, it becomes a massive bestseller along with the song Jesus Freaks, which is, a, if you've seen that video, it's all about Christian, global Christian martyrdom, but mostly about like white evangelicals in the U.S. getting conflated with persecuted brown folks globally. And the kind of the third element to that is that book also got republished and kind of packaged with some of the tales of so-called tales of Christian martyrdom from Columbine to connect to your the, the shootings aspect that you just mentioned. So the cases of Rachel Scott and Cassie Bernal got added to that book and marketed alongside that book uh, with the with the narrative, which we now know was completely false, uh, that they you know had said that they were killed because of their Christian faith, right? Because the the shooters there in Columbine hated them because they were Christian. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, all the different elements you're introducing there about growing up evangelical, about school shootings, um, for me, are a different sort of origin story to this project was another way in which I thought to myself in response to that question, huh, yeah, it is interesting that white kids in Indiana uh, who are middle class to upper class are voraciously reading these tales of brown people getting killed globally and mm. saying, that's me, you know, I'm persecuted too. That's an excellent, uh, that's an excellent connection. Uh, so tell us a little bit more, what are some of the characteristics of this particular kind of Spanish colonialism that the Jesuits participated in? And what role did Jesuits play in Spanish colonialism up until their expulsion from so-called New Spain in 1767? So one foundational characteristic is the system of patronato real, which means royal patronage. And the term simply means that the Iberian monarchs, that is the monarchs of Castile and Aragon and later Portugal, were the patrons of all religious work in the Americas. Uh, there's a complicated theological justification for this, going back to the papal bulls of donation in the 1490s. 
But essentially the Pope gave over or donated control of the church in the Americas to the kings and queens of Castile and, and Portugal as well in the case of Brazil. And what this means for the Jesuits is that they're quite literally serving two, master, two masters. They're serving both God and king. And their missions from the get-go are as much imperial projects as they are evangelistic projects. So they're charged with pacifying frontiers, uh, resettling indigenous communities, and fashioning them into loyal subjects at the same time as they're supposed to be evangelizing, catechizing, administering sacraments, and tending to pastoral concerns. And so I think this relationship between church and state, uh, although it fluctuated over the centuries, there are times in which you know, Jesuits find themselves quite cozy with soldiers and colonial governors. There are other times where they find themselves in very contested and confrontational situations in which they're competing for indigenous land and indigenous labor. And that's part of what leads to their expulsion, right, is the way in which they end up controlling a lot of land that had been indigenous and a lot of native bodies. Um, However, what doesn't change throughout that 200-year period from the 1560s when the Jesuits first arrive in the Americas to the 1760s when they're expelled is the need for these priests and other religious workers to somehow explain themselves, explain how these two masters can work together, right? And explain to their converts and to other audiences how a vocation of spreading the gospel, ostensibly preaching the love of God, and the fruits of the spirit, right? love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, how that can fit oh. with uh, a job that entailed violent conquest, um, participation in endem endemic disease, even though, of course, they didn't know germ theory, but they know that people are dying around them in massive quantities, and particularly so at the missions. And ultimately, the territorial dispossession of these native communities. And so I think that's part of what I'm wrestling with. How, are, how is it that these people who are saying they're following Jesus, and the society of Jesus, you know, is named after this ideal of imitating Christ, uh, are, you know, so obviously, I think, to an outside observer, contemporary observer, um, not doing Christ-like things, right? And so that, that's part of what I wanted to get into is, what is it that allows them theologically to justify what they're doing? A few things uh, popped in my mind there. The first is that when I think about U.S. American settler colonialism, I think that it came in waves, right? It didn't happen overnight. It literally took centuries, and, and we we are continuing the project. It's been, what, 400 years of, of U.S. American now, uh, I guess, first British and now U.S. American settler colonialism. And at times, the settlers would send the army. And then when they, for the most part in the very beginning, would get their asses kicked by united indigenous nations, then they would send the priests. And then after a time, or the priests and the ministers. And so they would send the pastors and ministers for a while and build some churches. And then when that quit working, when indigenous people were like, all right, we're done with this, um, we would send settlers, just poor settlers to go uh, basically raid and slaughter indigenous village. And then again, the army, and it was, it was this big cycle. And in different seasons, different people, different groups would play different roles in the project of settler colonialism, even though both far right conservatives and more liberal folks thought that they were doing very different things, different ways of relating to indigenous people, even though it was the same project. That was the first thing that popped in my head. And then also, you know, you talked about bringing the fruits of the spirit 
in the role of colonizing people. I hear basically the fruit of the spirit is the the fruit of pacification and subordination. I think um, that was a really clear uh, example that that popped in my head. Teaching people who are directly being colonized, in, you know, indirectly, culturally, through religion um, and through the transformation of sexual and, and, and gendered habits, um, through language, also uh, through private property, ec- economic, and then directly with the force of a gun. I, I, I hear that and I see that and it really stuck out to me. Um, one thing I did want to name, though, is that this is a different kind of colonialism than what we have here in the United States. The colonialism that happened in Central and South America was a kind of a, I don't know, a traditional or old school colonialism that was primarily uh, intended to extract the natural resources and labor power with military presence. There really wasn't much of an interest in settling and displacing the masses of indigenous people like we did here in the United States and have and continue to do. Um, so so this was a traditional colonialism, which looks different and has a different function than a settler colonialism, which is what we have. But one thing that kind of stuck out to me that's a little bit interesting because we're talking about the priests who did live, who did travel to what is presently Mexico. And so they themselves were settlers, right? Even though it wasn't a settler colonial project as a whole, they were settlers and they lived their whole life in the colony. And what I kind of walked away with um, hearing some of the theology that they were sharing was they basically had settler colonial ideology and theology. Yeah, I mean, there's some debate about whether Latin America has forms of settler colonialism or not. Uh, I think it's a little bit messier than, than you know, to say that, that, that there wasn't any at all because of what you just pointed out. The missions themselves are engaged in a process of resettling indigenous people, right, to reduce them, to bring them from uh, set in, to bring them from mobile uh, ways of existing, particularly in the Sonoran Desert, into settled spaces, usually in river valleys, right, and teaching them all these elements of civilization. And what's going on throughout this process, and it depends where you're looking in Latin America, where you're looking in Mexico or New Spain, you do have settlers, you know, you do have colonists there. You've got the soldiers, but you've also got um, towns being built up. You've got mine, mining communities. In the second chapter, I talk about the pacification of the Akashé and on the border between Sinaloa and Chihuahua. That's alongside the building up of mining cities and mining towns, right, which are about resource extraction, but there are cities being built up, European settlement being built up at the same time. And often, those interests can come into conflict, right? This is part of why the Jesuits end up contesting some of that settler power. But so it's a it's a little more complicated. But I think you're right that uh, it is different in that you're not primarily relying on um, vast numbers of settlers coming in and forcefully taking over native land. And one of the differences has to do with disease and depopulation, right? I've just uh, finished reviewing this excellent book, Church of the Dead by Jennifer Shepard Hughes about the epidemics of 16th century Mexico. And you're talking about millions of people dying from disease just in those first decades of the 1500s. And so by the time you're looking at 16 teens in the case of Virginia or 1620s in the case of Massachusetts Bay, there's been a dramatic depopulation that's happened for over a century in North America, right? And so, so you know, when people ask me, 
you know, what's better, Spanish colonialism or, you know, English and later U.S. colonialism? It's like, well, they're dealing with vastly different situations. You're also looking at, in the case of Mexico, um, the Mexica alliance, the triple alliance with the group that we call the Aztecs, which have dramatic um, or, you know, have powerful networks throughout the Americas, reaching all the way up to New Mexico, all the way down to Peru and so it's a, it's just a different sort of situation they're dealing with, right? They're dealing with an existing political system. Yeah, and that is such a that's such a like a a messed up. I, to me, it's like a, a question of the colonizer. Well, are we slightly better colonizers than those colonizers? You know, right, that, right. that is a really weird question. Right. But um, no, I, I hear that. But it uh, is part of the long story of you know the the way in which in the English speaking world they've thought about the spanish speaking world the so-called black legend of spanish cruelty right that the spaniards were worse because of all this disease and depopulation and that gets mobilized to justify english settler colonies right so people like cotton mather who i've worked on quite a bit read bartolome de las casas and say ha 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 you know here we go look at all these evil things that these spanish catholics are doing we're gonna do it better right we're gonna do it through commerce and publication and evangelical alliances yeah, I was thinking what popped in my mind was the different forms of slavery that took place here in the British and eventually American or British colonies and then uh, in the American Empire compared to Central and South American Spanish uh, colonies, right? Because enslavement here, uh, enslaved people, enslaved Africans uh, lived much longer and, and there were numerically, I think, smaller deaths, but that was because there was a different form of slavery, right? Um, in Central and South America, they would they would enslave indigenous peoples and Africans, and and it was cheaper to replace them than to establish um, the kind of slavery that we had up here, where you didn't want your slave to die; you wanted them to live all their life and be your slave all your life. So I think that's interesting to think about different forms of colonialism. It's an important question for us today. Because there are continue to be different kinds of colonialism. There's the traditional, there's the settler colonialism. We have semi-colonialism or neo-colonialism today. And they, these are all really important questions, um, both about our past and our present. And, and thanks for kind of diving into the, the complexity. There's there's similarities, but there's differences. And those are really important. So yeah, that's right. tell us a little more. What role do missionary deaths and martyrdom in particular uh, play in the minds of Spanish Catholics in general, but also Jesuits in particular. This is this is like the heart. This is the the bread and butter of your book. And why do you think Spain and the Catholic Church needed you know missionary deaths to be narrated in a way that made it out to seem as if you know priests were being killed because non-Christian indigenous nations, right? They were imagined as heathen or uncivilized and whatever other things they labels they had. You know they, they were hated because of their religion, you know, their profession of Christ and not what Spain, who just happened to be a Christian colonizing power, uh, was doing to their lands and their labor power. What do you think? A lot there, a lot there. But so I don't want to argue that extolling missionary death is unique to Spaniards or to the Society of Jesus. Others like Emma Anderson have written about martyrdom amongst Jesuits in New France in similar ways, right? So you can see uh, French Jesuits that are extolling their own death, their own suffering, their own mar- martyrdom in ways that really mirror what I write about, but that are, but that are you know unique to uh, French colonialism, which is a whole nother right, um, more fo- a little bit more focused on trade and um, 
establishing alliances with mobile communities, right? Um, so it's not unique to Spain, uh, nor is it really unique to the Jesuits, but what I'm trying to trace is a genealogy of the idea that martyrdom leads to the expansion of Christianity, and then by the Middle Ages to the expansion of something called Christendom, right? Christianity married to political power, and this goes all the way back, as I trace in the book, to Jerome, talking about the suffering of the saints being the triumph of the church and Tertullian, of course, famously saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christianity to Augustine and Aquinas who later expand different notions of martyrdom to bring in forms of suffering that are short of death, but that are still seen as uh, justifying the expansion of the church in Europe. Uh, but however, Spanish Catholics are unique in the, their positionality in the 16th century, right? As Ignatius, and Francis, Francis uh, Xavier and others are forming the Society of Jesus, uh, where they have engaged in a centuries-long process of identity formation vis-a-vis -vis racial and religious others, namely vis-a-vis -vis Jews and Muslims, and uh, or Jews who have converted conversos or uh, Muslim-descended communities who have converted moriscos. And there's a way in which martyrdom, war, and territorial expansion become intimately fused in 14th, 15th, 16th century Spain. And the best example of this is the cult of St. James or Santiago. And right now, you know, I open my Twitter feed and I see dozens of friends completing the pilgrimage to Santiago Compostela. And I wonder like, what do they tell their students? You know, we're making pilgrimage to the shrine of the, the warrior martyr, right? To the person who justified the Reconquista. And Santiago ostensibly is James the Greater, brother of John, one of the 12 apostles who is understood in the Catholic Church as the first martyr of the church. Uh, but in Spain, he becomes particularly associated with the Reconquista, and he becomes known as Santiago Matamoros, or St. James the Moor Slayer. And this is because in tale after tale, he miraculously appears uh, all in white, white-faced, shining white on a white steed, white clothes, in the middle of the fiercest battles uh, to grant victory to Castilians over and against racialized and darkened moors. Uh, so you could argue that the cult of a white warrior martyr who battles darkened religio-racial others uh, to take away their territory is foundational to early modern Spanish Catholicism. Now for the Jesuits, it's complicated because the Jesuits, of course, are global and international. Uh, and the Jesuits that come to New Spain are not exclusively Spanish, right? So one person I write about quite a bit, Eusebio Kino, is Italian or, or Austrian. He's from the border between Italy, what's modern Italy and Austria, uh, and is not Spanish. And I do write about a number of these German Jesuits that struggle with Spanish culture. They don't like Spanish culture. They don't like the food. They don't like the architecture. And they complain about Spanish culture to uh, friends back home in their letter writing as much as they complain about indigenous culture, sometimes more. Uh, so, the, you know, you add that little element. Another thing about the Jesuits is that they, Ignatius in founding it is very clear that he does not want it to be focused on asceticism or self-flagellation. And he warns against it and tries to distance the society from, you know, the 12th and 13th century groups like Franciscans and Dominicans who he saw as overly focused on suffering. Uh, However, they are distinct in that they take a fourth vow, and that vow is to be sent by the Pope anywhere the Pope needs them. This is where we get the language of missionary, the, that Latin verb, missionare, to send, comes from the fourth vow, you know, the pledge to be sent by the Pope, wherever the Pope, wherever they are needed. 
And this means that they're immediately plunged into this global moment of European expansion. And so they're approved officially as a society by a papal bull in 1540. And immediately, Francis Xavier, Ignatius's right-hand man, sets out but, um, with a charge from the king of Portugal to spread the gospel in Portuguese global territories. So by 1541, less than a year after the founding of the Jesuits, he's in Goa, India, right? And then within decades, he's in Japan and then dies en route to China. And he sets in motion this prototype of the Jesuit missionary as suffering servant, as, uh, you know, as I talk about in the book, as a white murder, someone who didn't, wasn't killed, you know, in a, in a bloody scene of resistance, but gives over his life, sacrifices a life of great intellectual and material promise to go to the ends of the world. And I think it's in missions that the Jesuits in particular begin to latch on to martyrdom as a theme. And then just one more element to this, and Emma Anderson has talked about this in New France, I've seen the same thing in New Spain. They, I think martyrdom becomes particularly powerful for Jesuits in North America because they're not that successful. <laughs> Uh, in terms of conversions and in terms of long-term missions. They struggle for a lot of ecological reasons, political reasons. Ultimately, we know they're expelled, and that's the, the, the real end to the, their missionary project. But martyrdom becomes a way of making what seems to be a failure into a success, right? Uh, this logic that even though in the moment it looks like, hey, people are rebelling, they're rejecting Christianity, they're burning churches, they're killing missionaries, they're defecating on images of the saints and the virgin, that seems to be a clear rejection. Jesuits are able to tell themselves, no, 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 this is how God always does it. God always makes good from evil. Turn back to the story of Joseph, right? What you intended for evil, God has turned into good. And this is the sort of redemptive logic that I think allows them to confront not only violence, but failure right? Real failure of the mission at times and say, well, yeah, it's through failure that God works. And so it's a, it's a no-lose situation, right? If you convert people and have a successful mission, then you're doing that. If people resist, burn down the mission and reject you, that's also good. This is really interesting. Yeah. When I was, when I was picking some of that up in your, uh, in your book, it made me think about how you know, today we live in a culture that's it's an on-demand culture, right? Capitalism has made us uh, very demanding and, you know, we, we want to consume stuff immediately, right? We don't have to wait for things and we have all these options. But when it comes to colonization, it it takes such a – it's a very long effort. And even presently, the, you know, the rising far-right fascist forces, they can't, they can't win in a day. Um, and nor can uh, counter forces to them, and so, and so, it seems like this kind of theology, this way of saying, okay, we had another missionary die today, or we had a mass indigenous rebellion and um, and rejection, and and it looks really bad, but actually, it's a good. You know, there's something that can come about from this. And to me, it's almost like a, a theological mechanism that helps the colonizers play a long game because you you couldn't reduce indigenous people to just basic slaves in a single day. You couldn't seize all the resources, all the land in um, even a couple of years, let alone even a whole century. There was a long-term uh, effort and struggle. And so there had to be some way of saying, uh, of making sense of the defeats and 
I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I also think that that really that that speaks that there's something interesting there about the present defeats because the United States of America has been defeated again and again and again. Um, even though we became the global superpower after World War II, we've lost. You know, we we just continually lost in in Korea. I'm t- I'm talking people. You know, uh, uh, poor peasants living in uh, in huts were able to combat the the wealthiest imperialist power of the world in Korea, um, in Vietnam, and, you know, and nations all over the world, and, and continuing today, and e- even indigenous people today, right? Um, the the fact that indigenous people continue to exist here under U.S. colonial rule uh, speaks to their our inability to uh, complete the original project, which was extermination, wipe them from the planet of the earth. So anyways, um, I think there's something interesting there about how theology played to uh, prop up the long struggle for colonization. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, thinking about the, uh, the implications of this book as I prepare for this conversation was returning to an idea that I had earlier on. I might have mentioned it a couple times in the book, but didn't really fully unpack is the idea of a redemptive economy. In a way, it's it's sort of competing with capitalism, right? Because you've got this, going back to royal patronage, you've got a crown that's saying, we are investing money. We are bringing you over as missionaries. We're paying for your colleges in central Mexico. We're training you. We're sending you out. We're paying for you know, mules that haul all this stuff to the far-flung frontiers. We're paying the soldiers who are helping to protect you. What's the return on that, right? And particularly when the mission gets burned down, when missionaries get run off, how do you then turn back to the crown and say, oh, this is all worth it. You know, this, uh, okay. we're being productive. And so I think, you know, and I get to this about in the fourth chapter when I talk about Kino and his work in what's now Sonora, Mexico and Southern Arizona, where it's sort of a middle point. You're not getting the sort of late medieval theology around martyrdom that you get in the earlier part of the book, the first martyrs like Gonzalo de Tapia and, and Sinaloa, where it's very cosmic, right? It's, sacred war it's god against the devil competing for territory by the time you get about 100 years later in the 1680s 1690s there's much more concern for material causes and material consequences right and you've got a there there's a lot more pressure on the jesuits to produce and a lot more suspicion that they themselves are getting wealthy right these conspiracy theories about secret jesuit riches that uh, are believed to be stored in baja california and so you, you do get someone like Kino who's navigating both. He's resourcing these older Christian logics. At the same time, he wants to demonstrate that it's financially paying off, right? And that it's and that it's paying off militarily as well, that the Atom, the indigenous group, he's uh, uh, working alongside and against, depending how you see it, uh, themselves are good allies who will so- help secure the border, who will fend off what he sees is more uncivilized, quote-unquote, or savage people like the Apaches to the Northeast, and that that it's productive. It's worth the investment, right? But martyrdom always kind of comes in alongside that, to get to your point, to say we need to, yes, I want to argue that in the present, this is actually doing something materially and militarily. We are being successful, despite what it might look like. But, yes, the long game too, right? We need to look teleologically we need to look not just uh at the material causes but we need to look at the ultimate cause and he to still argue the ultimate cause is that the devil uh the great common enemy 
is trying to resist the expansion of Christendom, and that God knows that you need uh, you need the blood of the martyrs to expand Christianity, which is really where the title of the book comes from, right? It's a fellow Jesuit that writes to Kino in the wake of the 1695 Pima Revolt, who says, fear not, a father, we know that missions begin with blood. That this is part of the investment, right? That you need to deposit blood, sweat, and tears. But there is this economic logic that it once deposited, that will grow up and we'll be able to reap those harvests later on. The the land needs tilled, needs cleared, it needs prepped. We'll lay the seed and we will see fruits later on. Yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, sick but powerful, I think, logic. So I want to go die. I want to d- go a little bit deeper into this main theme of martyrdom and, and the role it it plays in uh, present day situation um, in our political landscape today. So, uh, in what ways do you see the myth that white settler Christians suffer, um, are persecuted, and are afflicted because of quote unquote hatred of the faith? How do you see this persist in the U.S. today? And what role do you think this theological narrative is playing in our political struggle? Right. So I definitely want to get to the current thing, if you'll indulge me for a bit, to, to, to do a little historical work uh, to explain that language of hatred of the faith. And, that, and then I want, I want to get to where we see this around us today. So in mentioning that phrase, hatred of the faith, that's a theological term, and which I do think is a key contribution in my work unpacking the language and the way that it shaped martyr discourse. So to be declared a saint in the Catholic Church, there are different routes to that. You know, you might become a route, you might become a saint through your reputation of sanctity. So someone like Mother Teresa, who's not a martyr, but goes through the canonization process because of her holy work. Um, Although that legacy is very much contested today. But if you're a martyr, if you become a saint as a martyr, it's different. It's not really exclusively through your holy reputation and not and then the added you know work that you must do after death, which is to perform miracles on behalf of those who petition you. You do have to do one of those as a martyr, but you get that knocked down. That qualification gets knocked down. Uh, <laughs> wow. And because a martyr martyrs are seen to have testified by giving their life, right? Oh, and so they don't wow. need to testify post life as much. They still need to have one or two miracles, but not as much as a standard saint. But in order to be declared a martyr, you must have died in odium fidei, right? Or in odio de la fe in Spanish, or in hatred of the faith. And what this means is not only that the martyr or the potential martyr, or the priest or religious worker willingly dies for the faith, that's part of it. But the other part is you have to prove that the people who killed them killed because of Christianity or killed because they hated religion. And that's really the difficult part when you're, to go back to royal patronage, when the mission is both political and spiritual, right? Uh, It's hard to pull those two apart when they've been interwoven. I think it's part of the reason none of these people have been canonized so far, right? Um, Is because it's so clearly their missionary work was entangled physically, materially, politically, and religiously. And I think that's part of what, you know, some of the stories I get into, what they're trying to untangle and prove that, in fact, this person did die because of the faith. And this is why the whole genre, the histories, the letters, inevitably focus on the burning of the churches, uh, the destruction of sacred images, um, you know, sacrileges done to missionary bodies, because these are proofs. These are genre proofs of hatred of the faith. 
Uh, but what that does, and I think what I think scholars have unwittingly followed their sources, even as they're they're hoping to critique the sources, um, scholars have said, oh, see, it was all religious, right? Uh, because the missionary sources say it's all religious, but they're turning attention away from the political, physical, and material causes of the violence. Mm. And so I do, I do think a lot of scholars have fallen for this, fallen for and not properly understood the genre. In terms of wider white settler Christian stories, I see this discourse everywhere I look. I think about it sometimes, you know, you buy a new car and all of a sudden you see your car everywhere on the highway, right? Like we bought a Honda Accord and all of a sudden I realize everyone owns a Honda Accord. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> so, you know, I spent 10 years working on this project. All of a sudden I see this discourse everywhere. So mm. you think about like, remember the Alamo, this phrase that we grew up with and we're taught, what does that mean? What are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember the deaths of what, if you go to the Alamo today, they call the martyrs of the Alamo, you know, Bowie and uh, Davy Crockett and all those guys, they were martyrs, martyrs for what? Well, they were hopelessly outgunned by this evil, you know, imperial army from Mexico, right? Who, who were, you know, threatening their lives and liberty, you know, and it excludes all the other political, material, physical realities of U.S. Southerners moving into Texas in the hope of expanding uh, slavery, the filibuceros, other Southerners who are invading Mexico at this time and trying to expand the U.S. nation state, just as they're doing in Indian Wars in the North, um, that you're, you're, hold, you're hiding all of that and turning attention to sacrificial death, right? And what, you know, what was it all about? Ultimately, what was the Mexican War about? It was about these plucky young uh, Texans and you know frontiersmen from Tennessee who stood up for liberty and got helplessly outgunned by this evil army, right? Uh, and so you know, there's that. I live here now in North Carolina. I think you're in North Carolina as well. I've gone through 10 years of being involved in conversations on this campus around the legacy of the lost cause. The building I'm, I'm speaking from now is called Carolina Hall, but when I came here, it's called Saunders Hall, named after the head of the Carolina, uh, North Carolina Ku Klux Klan, uh, Colonel William Saunders. Silent Sam, of course, our Confederate monument here on, on campus caught all sorts of national, international uh, news as we've navigated that story and could go on and on. But the Lost Cause landscape, landscape is a martyr discourse. And I don't know that that's been fully appreciated. If you go to any statue, any speech, you're going to see the language of Anglo-Saxon sacrifice, right? These boys who were defending their homes against Northern aggression and gave their lives so that white supremacy could be secured, right? And of course, these things are going up during Jim Crow and going up during um, the white supremacist violence of the late 19th, early 20th century. So, right, I mean, Almost anywhere you look, from the Alamo to the Lost Cause, you see this discourse of sacrificial death as a foundational claim to coercive maneuvers over people's bodies and their land. And it runs, uh, I think, right into the present. And one example I talk about in the epilogue is the modern search for the body of Eusebio Kino, this colonial Jesuit missionary, and how both before and after that body is found in 1967 in Mexico, there's a press to mobilize Kino as a symbol of European sacrifice in the cause of civilization. And, you know, politicians like Barry Goldwater are the biggest supporters of this. He founds the Arizona 
historical foundation for specifically this purpose of extolling Kino and kind of unpacking a, a legacy of European civilization in what was deemed to be, um, you know, frontier land, the borderlands, right? And to, to raise that up as equivalent to Puritan civilization. Uh, William Rehnquist is involved with this, Sandra Day O'Connor, a lot of what becomes the kind of modern conservative movement in its roots in Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, particularly in the form of Barry Goldwater, latches on to someone like Kino and his sacrificial labors as foundational to civilization expanding in the Southwest. Other things are happening in Mexico with a different sort of politics and different histories of church and state that, that are conspiring in the same direction. And so, you know, I do write about in the epilogue, the, the meeting of Gerald Ford and uh, Luis Echeverria, who's the president of Mexico, around Kino's body in the, in the 19, in 1974, as they talk about expanding uh, international cooperation, development of factories, and most of all, resisting communism. To get back to this podcast, right, the, the great fear of the expansion of communism from Cuba through Central America and the desire of the U.S. to protect Mexico as as an ally, and and I think there's you know a great example there of all sorts of language about Kino's you know gargantuan efforts and his toiling labor in the cause of European civilization. And one other example I'm thinking about one one thing I've been ruminating about is you know the the revelations which we've known about, but now the details are starting to come out of widespread and massive death of children in native boarding schools, res residential schools in Canada, boarding schools in the U.S. We're only just getting to the, you know, the Interior Department releasing this report, but we're just starting to do the work of um, tracking down these unmarked graves and really grasping the massive scale of the death of native children in these institutions. And the response of certain conservatives uh, in conservative magazines or people like Matt Walsh, uh, who have, you know, consistently argued that the death of these natives was redemptive and necessary for the advance of European civilization. And that's a sort of more unabashed version of it, right, where it's just clear. It's not even hidden in the language of, uh, you know, sort of liberalism or progress that we might see with, with missionaries like Kino or Damien Molokai, who I've been researching in Hawaii. Uh, there, there are some people now who are just unabashedly saying, yes, Native suffering and Native death uh, was necessary and required for us to found um, U.S. civilization. Yeah, and and so, you know, for this just for a moment, you know, we're, we're really thinking about the far right or even just conservative uh, folks in general, the Republican Party, uh, how they weaponize uh, moments of how basically they say the exploited and oppressed people, you know, and, and they don't mean the working class, but um, exploited and oppressed black and Latin folks or feminists or trans persons or uh, people in another country that they are the ones who hate them because in part they're. Uh, because white people are, are Christians, right? Conservative uh, white Christians. And and that just, it resonates so much for me as someone who grew up in evangelical communities. Um, and, and I think that that feeling, that sense of being told that you're hated because why? Because you love Jesus, right? Every single day um, we were told 
that we are to love Jesus, we are to love God, and that God loves the world, and it's um, and it's purely this purely thing. It's not political. It's just it's just about the the truth of, of love. Um, and yet there are people who want to take that love away from us, who want to harm us because we know this love. And and I'm just trying to kind of speak in the language uh, for listeners to really understand that it's hard to imagine reality. I, I would say it's hard when you when you are raised with that kind of concept that you are hated simply because you just love Jesus and you're just you're just speaking, you know, the Bible. Um, it's I think it's really hard. It, it takes a long time to transition into a more materialist understanding of what's actually happening, how we're act, how you know, who are the real oppressors? Who are the real exploiters in the world? And so yeah, if, if you're constantly being told that you are hated because of your faith, it, it's a really powerful organizing tool, I would say. Uh, I definitely want, I, you know, I, I definitely would want to unite with other people who also uh, are, are tired of, of being hated for just being Christian. Um, but what obviously is going unseen is how they're actually participating in the exploitation, you know, supporting, uh, supporting the oppression of the masses of working people, the masses of uh, nationally colonized people, and then, of course, U.S. imperialism across the world. Yeah, I mean, I think if I were to position, you know, positively, so much of what I'm doing is trying to deconstruct um, a theological tradition, but to position it positively, you know, what I would hope for if a Christian's listening to this and thinking, what do I do with this story? It's so hopeless. It's that it's to do precisely what you said. It's to... to to kind of wake up to the material and physical violence that's undergirding this, to, to, to address that and undo it and be honest about it, to reckon with it, and to um, to envision, as you were saying earlier, another way, <laughs> a way of transformation, right? Um, but there's such a hold. I think back to, as you were talking about, I was thinking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, at that restaurant in Virginia or Maryland, you know, who, who got kicked out of the restaurant because the servers didn't want to serve her in the midst of, you know, the so-called border crisis and children in cages or, you know, different. We've seen examples of this just recently with Ted Cruz, you know, getting his dinner interrupted three days after the Uvalde shootings and that being positioned on the right as a, a moment of, you know, horrendous incivility and, you know, the violation of, of, uh, of a dinner as being the most important thing. That's the thing we need to focus on. Not, you know, 20 something children and teachers being slaughtered in their school in the last days of their school year. Um, and so it's the diversion of it, right? It's the, don't don't pay attention here, turn your attention here. And I would hope that Christians, and I when I've taught, I've taught uh, at both conservative and liberal seminaries. I've taught from Harvard Divinity School to Claremont School of Theology. And uh, Phoenix Seminary is a conservative evangelical seminary. I taught it for a while. But I tell all the students the same thing, right? Uh, it doesn't do any good to look back at the history of Christianity or the history of the church and tell a singular story of triumph, right? A, a garden that's full of roses. And it doesn't. It also doesn't, you know, tell the full truth if we only see the weeds. Um, but you're never going to get to paradise or get to some kind of envision of a transformed world without being honest uh, about the weeds that are there, right? And the way in which we've allowed those weeds to grow up and take over the entire garden, right? And so, 
Yeah, I think that's that's the bigger project, right? Is to is to try to um, pull some of this up. I just read in the last year. I wish I'd read it before I wrote this book. Willie Jennings' A Christian Imagination, which gave me a, a, a bigger vision for this and a, and a vision that tied into theological work and the work of Christian ethics, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's part of the the road I'm on right now is to to try to imagine where we take this. And you know we've been we've been pulling out about how religion and race it's kind of inseparable here. Earlier on, there was this more religious identity that were that were Christian Spaniards, um, but eventually, it really uh, whiteness comes about to first rationalize colonialism and then uh, to rationalize imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, and to also and part of it is to divide the masses of working people. And I think that's one of its main functions today. You know, when I think about the masses of like working class, even white evangelicals, settler evangelicals who feel who have more kind of religious identity and religious consciousness um, at, rather than their class consciousness. They're uniting with petty bourgeois, but especially bourgeois you know, ruling capitalist settlers who have no concern for them whatsoever. But they think they have more in common with really, really wealthy white men than they do with black and indigenous and Latin and Asian working class people. Um, and so I think that this is a this is one of the primary means. It's de or I'm sorry, it's not demystifying. It's mystifying their exploitation. It's mystifying our collective um, uh, exploitation, and it's serving us to join and, and make allies with people who really shouldn't. They're not our allies. They're hurting us. They're hurting our communities. They're hurting our bodies and our spirits and our minds. Um, and they're actually kind of reorienting us to participate in the justification and actually like the full on support of the oppression of other uh, uh, nationally colonized peoples. That's great. Yeah, just real quickly, you know, I think here here in North Carolina, we saw that in the last decade where you see the kind of building up the moral movement, Moral Mondays, and then the, the Poor People's Campaign and the wider movement led by William Barber. And you begin to see some, you know, working across some of these differences that you're talking about in, in all sorts of different ways, racially, class-wise. Um, but lo and behold, um, you know, the anti-trans bathroom bill comes along, right? Like you bring in the cultural issue that then as soon as people are starting to, to, to see these things and make connections, that then becomes a wedge issue that breaks that back apart. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that we talk a lot about on this podcast is, is liberalism, uh, particularly as an ideology that's produced by capitalism uh, as it emerges in the last several centuries. And there is this tendency, especially within the United States, to say that the problem, I mean, all of our problems today are basically about conservative uh, white reactionaries. That's the main problem. If we, if they were just less conservative and more liberal, if they were more, you know, inclusion, equity kind of folk instead of like just explicit racism, because we have these two parties. We have the Republican Party, which is explicitly sexist, explicitly racist. Um, it, it's just like honest about its politics. Then you have the Democratic Party who's like, look, we had a black president or, hey, we had a black female vice president. You know, aren't aren't black people so welcome with us? You know, we are the party of black people. We are the party of workers. We are the party of of poor people and, and trans. You know, name the, the targeted, exploited or oppressed group. The Democratic Party pretends to serve in that manner. But I think you, you mentioned communism earlier. 
I think that was a that, that's a that's the kind of the missing that's the main missing piece I think between the two is because they're both for capitalism, they're both for the mass exploitation of wor- of the working class, and they're both for uh, settler colonialism. Here, right? neither one wants to end U.S. Uh, colonial settler colonialism. Neither one wants to curb U.S. imperialism across the world. So they're actually united. They're actually very similar, and they have uh, common interests. Um, and it's not ours. <laughs> uh, it's not the masses of working uh, working class people. It's not the the interests of nationally colonized people. So let, let's right. I mean, you know, we've seen it in the last couple of years with Biden gets in. What happens to the military budget? It goes dramatically up. What happens to uh, border enforcement money for Customs Border Patrol goes up. What happens, you know, in the wake of uh, police brutality? No, no, no. We don't need to defund. We just need more training, which need, means more money, right? So, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and we just had a massive. Uh, I mean, it's been it's kind of been decades now, but economically, the masses of working people are getting crushed, and and they're like, well, wages are on the rise by a couple cents, really, and and it's not like buying power. Our buying power is actually uh, decreasing, so you really can't say wages are on the rise. But there've been massive bailouts for banks, and now with the pandemic, our employers saw profits while we were working extra shifts or uh, because the just the degrading conditions we had coworkers um, losing their minds and, and leaving the workforce and so we you know the workers who stayed were, were working uh, extra shifts and and the blame is, is placed on workers and not capitalists so the, you know the blame is 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 placed on migrants and not how both parties are serving our ruling class, you know? And, and and so, I mean, let's talk about this for a second. So how about the American identity in the U.S. American project itself? How do you see the Democratic pro- uh, Party propping up this myth that the United States is a force for good in the world, you know, uh, uh, preserves democracy against terrorists and authoritarians? You know, they used to be communists, and perhaps that's going to be brought back. They, you know, they see... China is a socialist communist country, so they'll so they say socialism, communism. It's back to take away our freedom, take away our our wealth, take away our our religion. Um, but the Democratic Party is just like the Republican Party, and then it, it says that it safeguards the world from injustice, um, and it's not because of a hatred of the Christian faith per se, but I think uh, more liberal Democrats would say it's a hatred of our freedom and our democracy, which are a hatred of our commitment to capitalism. So what do you think about that? Right, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I started kind of with the origin story of this project, which was kind of looking at the contemporary U.S. situation, the global situation, and thinking about the way rhetorics of sacrificial death justify imperial violence. Uh, and so I'm kind of in a moment now, after this book came out, thinking about the second project, beginning to, I've kind of mentioned already, think about 19th and 20th century uh, monument culture, the building up of statues and other monuments of sacrifice. And this includes Kino, who I mentioned, but I also mentioned Damien Amolokai, uh, who was a Catholic missionary that went to Hawaii. There's a recent dust up between uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, the auxiliary bishop of Los Angeles over a statue of Damien Amolokai in the capital. Uh, AOC was saying, oh, we pass this every day, but here's a white colonizer. We've got all these st- statues of white colonizers uh, who, you know, populate our capital, our U.S. capital, uh, and serve to occlude indigenous people. 
uh, who are from these lands, in this case, Hawaii, indigenous Hawaiians. And, you know, this Catholic bishop immediately responds and says, this is horrific. You chose the worst possible example. Damien Amalekai was uh, a saint, a, a man who went to Molokai, a leper's colony, and, um, you know, only showed love. And he's deeply appreciated by indigenous Hawaiians because of his sacrificial life. And I've been kind of wrestling with this and, and, and kind of coming to terms with the fact that I think they're both right, you know, in a way. They're both right that um, Damian Molokai is being held up as a civilizer in the U.S. Capitol. And he was a kind person, you know, motivated by love to get to, to you know, go in and serve lepers by all accounts, right? Uh, he wasn't like you were you were saying earlier, someone who was outwardly racist or outwardly exploiting. But I'm thinking about more widely, what is this work doing, right? It still does the work, and some might argue it does the work better, <laughs> right? It's a kindler, gentler settler colonialism, right? Because you, you, you can point to these people and say that they were sacrificial, that they were loving. And Kino, uh, who my own work has focused a lot on, was better than, than most of his fellow missionaries. Uh, but I think in some ways that makes it even more effective, right? Uh, and the example of Kino is that he's being mobilized now as um, not by the Barry Goldwaters and not as sort of a, a cowboy pioneer uh, who, you know, embodied libertarian values. He's being mobilized by liberal Catholics as a border patron, as someone who, um, who you know, models what it's what intercultural life looks like and models what it would mean to live in wow. harmony, and. You know, in a way, it's kind of a kindler, gentler border patrol, right? And there's been significant work, graduate student in our department, who graduated now as a professor at um, University of Illinois, Chicago, starting in the fall. Barbara Sostaita has written about this in terms of the sanctuary movement. And the sanctuary movement being really held up by liberal progressive Christians as a real victory. Here's a moment where the church stepped in to protect migrants, right? To um, to show them compassion and, and Jesus's love in the midst of destabilization. But she's really challenging that to say, actually, you know, ICE looks at, at sanctuary as an economic benefit and a logistical benefit, because what does it do? It functionally incarcerates uh, migrants in the church uh, at no cost to ICE and Border Patrol, right? And so they know where they are, they know they're contained, they can't move, it limits their body and their freedom. Uh, and the church is doing this for them. And not, not just the church, the liberal church, right? Uh, without dismantling the system that enabled it, right? Without fundamentally challenging the notion of national borders, without fundamentally challenging the notion of an unjust immigration system. It's not to say that, I mean, and I've been really supportive of fellow Christians here in the Triangle of North Carolina who have supported uh, immigrants. And I have myself have, you know, through marriage, family members that are undocumented. And so I've seen the way that logistically this really helps people on the ground. But ultimately, I think getting to your point, it doesn't fundamentally challenge border security and the securitization of the border that's led to millions of deaths. Uh, it doesn't fundamentally challenge the assumption of the settler colony. And in some ways, we might argue that, that it all uh, serves to make it kinder and gentler and more compassionate uh, which which lends it more force. Yeah, actually, actually, in a way, reproduces the the settler colonialism and the capitalist exploitation, and even you know the 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 patriarchy itself. So, it's it's interesting to think about how yeah, there are seasons where 
within the same society. It can swing right and it can swing more liberal and progressive. Um, but I think what I think socialists and communists can ally with like with progressives on is that we both want to stop fascism. The question is, is will we really understand what is really happening and why? You know, why is fascism? Why is the right uh, really gaining power? And uh, why, why are a lot of U.S. Americans swinging uh, not not far left, but to the far right? And and I think if we make it just about cultural ideas or uh, just you know, backward religion or, you know, uh, I don't know, they're just racist. If that's the extent of our analysis, rather than an understanding of these class contradictions of the way that capitalism and colonialism uh, puts us into uh, objective positions and it, and it really it messes with our conceptions of who we are and who other people are, if we don't see the exploitation of, um, and the colonization, then, yeah, then our proposed solutions endlessly fail. And oftentimes, even though we're, we're good faith, we're really well-intentioned, it actually ends up serving to reproduce the very thing that we're trying to combat. So I appreciate you bringing this, uh, the, this conversation tonight, Brandon. Um, and did you want to wrap Did you want to go ahead and, and uh, have the final word uh, about your book or any of the, any of the topic that we're talking about right now? Uh, yeah, I don't, the, the only thing that I was thinking about as you're talking uh, about this is, you know, the last two years in terms of the border, border security, uh, there, there, the people who are working on the ground have said that that things have gotten worse in, in so many ways, right? The kids in cages, you know, we're not focused on that anymore because it's not Trump, right? Um, that, you know, there are programs that are sensibly being created to be more humane. Uh, like centers where people can get water and things like that, but that have actually helped the border patrol better secure things, right? It's helped, it's helped solidify yeah. um, their, their systems of securitization and it's actually helped push people further out into the desert. And so and anyway, it just occurred to me as an example of what you're talking about. And certainly something that I'm hoping in my work, you know, in, in a way, and maybe this goes back to an evangelical upbringing, you know, you go back to, the Bible, you go back to Ad Fontes, you go back to the source. And so a way I view this project as, as a deep dive into these original moments of European native uh, encounter and the ways in which some of these discourses get set. But my goal is to bring it forward, right? We've been talking about the fourth the four piece and the next piece for me is to think through in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, how these things begin to get mobilized particularly in the West, but the way in which they're kind of borrowing from the work of Heather Cox Richardson, intimately tied to uh, slavery and, and to the South and the history of the South and, and the movement of a sort of Southern oligarchic culture uh, westward uh, and getting repurposed. So th that's that's where I'm trying to head with this. But this has been helpful for really kickstarting that and helping me begin to think about it in ways that I don't know that I had. Right on. Well, Brandon, I really appreciate you. Again, missions begin with blood, suffering, and salvation in the borderlands of New Spain. I learned a lot, and I look forward to continuing to learn from you. So thanks, Brandon. Thanks so, so much for having me, Chase.